0: hello and welcome or welcome back to the bmj innovations podcast i'm dr helen sarana one of the associate editors at bmj innovations and i'll be your host we hope you'll subscribe like and review the podcast wherever you are listening to it and do share on your own networks because we'd like as many people to hear it as possible BMJ Innovations is grateful to wish the World Innovation Summit for Health for making this podcast series possible. So in this first series, we're bringing you interviews from some of the world's top leaders in innovation. And coming up today, it's the turn of Patricia Odero from Nairobi in Kenya. She's the Regional Director for Africa at the Duke Global Health Institute. She talks to us about the particular needs for healthcare innovation in low- and middle-income countries, including interdisciplinarity, user-centred design, and the challenges and opportunities of low- and middle-income country settings. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and there's plenty to learn.
1: So I am Patricia Odero. I work at Duke's University's Global Health Innovation Centre. I am the Regional Director for Africa. And in that role, I lead a team that works with entrepreneurs that are primarily working on the African continent and also interface with uh, ministries of health and also regional uh, institutions, such as the Economic Committee of West African States, to be able to see how to integrate health innovations into healthcare systems and also facilitate connections with other ecosystem enablers so, you know, accelerators, incubators, research institutions, all of whom are doing work that enables healthcare innovation to thrive.
0: Great. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about your, yourself and your journey to how you got to that role and then what made you want to be a doctor in the first
1: place? <laughs> uh, interesting story. So when I was uh, about 15 or so, uh, my class went to volunteer at a children's home that at that time was taking care of orphans from the HIV uh, epidemic, which was really at its height in Africa at the time and uh, pediatric antiretrovirals were not available on the continent. And so this particular children's home was really just, you know, doing nutrition, just taking care of this young children. And um, just being able to spend time with uh, babies and young children really inspired me to think through, you know, what could I do to actually make their lives better? And at that time, I think adult antiretrovirals were just coming to the market. And so initially, I actually went in to become a pediatric HIV expert, Um, but somehow I think, yeah, my tangent changed. So went through medical school, still very passionate about pediatrics, graduated with a bachelor of medicine and bachelor of surgery, and went to be a general practitioner in a rural Kenyan hospital. And so that I think was really a reality check for me because we also had got to the point where just before I graduated and started off my internship, our Minister of Health had declared all health services free without a budget to support it. And so we had an overrun of people in the hospitals. And, you know, despite our best efforts, we were not able to meet the needs because we just didn't have the resources. And so for me, at that particular point, the question became, how can I make this system better you know so i know what i can do for the individual patient but this isn't working you know patient by patient so how can i make this better and so i moved after a couple of years i went into the private sector which was of course very well resourced etc but that question did not leave me and so i decided to take an mba Which then allowed me to think through, you know, how business, how private sector can contribute to society, how systems can be improved with, you know, management skills. And then now think through how do I take this into my own sector? And so I pivoted from more the healthcare space service provision into development And for quite a number of years, worked with GIZ, the German Development Corporation, um, supporting health system strengthening in uh, reproductive health and health financing. And uh, worked primarily in Kenya, but also set up programs in Cambodia and also did some public-private partnership programs in Germany at the GIZ headquarters. And so I think through my career, this big question of how do systems work to improve access to affordable quality care for the vast majority of uh, people is sort of the red thread. And so as I got on in this space, you know, thinking through public-private, what do mixed markets look like? I then discovered that there's a growing space around healthcare, and this is such a nascent space. At least in Africa, we didn't really have uh, a lexicon for healthcare innovation, but there were people doing interesting things, coming up with interesting solutions and that while working at different levels of scale. And as I was trying to understand, you know, how that fits with my life goal of making systems better, I met the team at Duke about close to seven years ago. So Duke had established a nonprofit called Innovations in Healthcare with McKinsey and the World Economic Forum. And the purpose was to identify promising healthcare innovations that were supporting access to affordable quality care and help them scale. And they were looking to set up an office in East Africa to support a specific accelerator program that they were running. And I was like, OK, I understand systems. I understand the entrepreneurial side. So that's how I joined Duke, um, set up our regional office uh, in Nairobi and, you know, have worked with entrepreneurs in East Africa initially, and then across the continent, to then help them scale their impact, to be able to identify new markets, so to facilitate connections with the public sector, so that if a public sector is their chosen scaling pathway, that they are able to access that pathway, and also connect them with private sector, corporates, foundations, that can be able to accelerate their growth. Yeah.
0: You're obviously a connector, you're bringing different groups together. Where are the Where are the biggest uh, gaps that you have to bridge in your role to, to bring the innovations through to actual scalable
1: solutions? A lot of those are institutional or organizational gaps. So, you know, within the entrepreneur, their team, You know, identifying the right talent to help you grow, being able to share your impact story, being able to demonstrate impact and share that impact story. Aspects such as funding, which is a more external issue, and so I think funding, I guess, is dear to my heart because I believe that you know, uh, there's a team I think at Andela that says talent is equally distributed, opportunity is not, and at least when I think of funding and access to funding for healthcare innovations in Africa, I. I believe that you know there's a lot of brilliant solutions that are coming through but then access to growth stage financing is really a challenge so there's a lot of small grants uh, prizes that then help um, early stage innovations you know experiment and iterate there is big money once you've proven that you can scale you know multi but then that's missing middle That The funding that you require to set up systems that will help you scale, the funding you require to iterate your original service or product to be able to make it more effective and more impactful, that's missing. And so I think that's a big, big barrier. Then the other aspect, of course, is the connection between academic uh, and research institutions to the healthcare innovation market. So our health education systems across most African countries, and I'm probably maybe being a bit general in this in this statement, don't really have rigor around the discipline of innovation and entrepreneurship. And so until recently, when I'm seeing, you know, universities setting up like innovation labs, setting up technology transfer offices. So ways in which that you facilitate R&D or research from universities or the academic space being commercialized, you know, pathways for that. And then, of course, the regulatory environment, you know, protection of intellectual property. And so creating the right incentives systemically that will encourage a natural innovation. So we found a lot of the innovations end up being more around maybe technology, you know, process innovations, not too much um science, maybe because, again, of that gap around, you know, commercialising what's coming out of academia.
0: What are some of the solutions to that middle space funding mm-hmm. gap, what can you do
1: to help? Sure. So I think a lot of this is really first being able to strengthen that ecosystem of support that entrepreneurs have. So creating a seamless way to have handoffs between different entities that are at an innovator requires at different stages of growth. So, you know, between incubators, accelerators, and also, you know, large scale funders. So one of the examples I would give is an innovator we've worked with for maybe close to eight years called Penda Health. So Penda is a social enterprise based out of Nairobi, Kenya. And they provide affordable private um, healthcare, primary health care, to basically, you know, bridge the gap for patients who can afford to pay something, but then are not able to, you know, get the quality of care that they require in the public system. And so with Penda, we started with them, I think, when they were at one clinic going on two, so quite early compared to some of the innovators we've worked with later on. And with our support, then we were able to help them connect with early stage investors, including angel angel investors. And then through those connections, also provided strategic advisors. And once they were, you know, that moved from two to about maybe five, and they wanted to raise a pre-seed round, you know, supported them to also look at grant funding that could be able to, you know, to provide that sort of, you know, complement the funding that they were raising. And over time, I think have worked with them as they've raised a series A and a series B. And now they are at 40 plus clinics with the aim of in the next five or so years, coming up to 100 clinics within the East African region. And so I think just being able to have a long-term view of what um, scaling looks like, especially because in healthcare specifically, when you compare it with other sectors. So for example, when you think of technology, the time to scale eight years, eight years is a really old tech company. But then when you think of an eight-year-old health social enterprise or a health innovation, that's still sort of more like, you know, midway through their growth journey. And so the time it takes to, you know, because of the rigor also that's required to prove impact in the health space, you know, the time it takes to scale is extended. And so being able to have a trusted partner that's going to be there with you for the long term, I think is something that's really useful and something that we have learned in our own journey. And so we support a network of innovators. So unlike an accelerator, which is time-bound, Once an innovator is part of our network, they receive intense support in the first couple of years, but then continue to be part of the network so that through their different um, stages of growth, then they are able to come back into the network. So an example is Narayana Health out of Bangalore. So Narayana Health provides affordable pediatric cardiac care and so they've grown rapidly in India. And so they were one of our first innovators, received this intense support and kind of just, you know, you know, let them grow. But when they wanted to start a joint venture in the Cayman Islands, which was something very different for them, totally different context from India, they came to us and said, you know, we this is almost like setting up a new innovation. Would you be able to help us? think through how to create operational efficiencies uh, within this new context, how to be able to integrate our team. And so for for us, because they are part of the network, then, you know, six, seven years later, can come back with a specific question that we have expertise to support. Got it. That's
0: so, that's so interesting. Now, you you've done an MBA and, and also a further master's degree in social entrepreneurship. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about those sort of times you've taken times out of your career to sort of study and how useful that's been to sort of build build your expertise really in, in the world of innovations.
1: So I think when I started my MBA, it was more, I wasn't actually even thinking about innovation, though I did a major in entrepreneurship incidentally. <laughs> Because I was thinking more around like you know how do you use management science to improve health systems, but then I then stumbled on you know one of my modules was on entrepreneurship and uh, strategic management, and so that kind of gave me like a foundation to understand how you know innovation coming up with novel ideas, how you could then grow that in an entrepreneurial way, and then after working at Duke for maybe three two to three years, and our focus was really more a social enterprise. I I thought about my context in Africa. So a lot of the challenges that we have and a lot of the ways we scale are not always on the enterprise side, on the business side. There's a big aspect around, you know, societal good. And so sometimes, you know, our rockstar health innovations are praised because, you know, they are able to generate X number in profit. They are able to kind of get like this individual level impact, but then not always correlated to the broader societal impact. But from the space I come in, you know, it's Ubuntu, you know, I am because we are. And so trying to understand, you know, how innovation really contributes to societal level impact was something that I kind of felt like I wasn't grounded in. And so when I went to uh, Cambridge, it was to take a master's in social innovation that looks at um, social innovation, as uh, social intrapreneurship, so within the organization, social entrepreneurship, so setting up new forms of organizations, and then social extrapreneurship, so setting up systems that enable social innovation. And so being able to come and um, take time to think through how could all those aspects, all those facets, you know, whether it's a corporate foundation, fostering innovative approaches, you know, farmer, medical device, you know, looking at access programs, for example, which is an area of social innovation, So more social entrepreneurship, whether it's setting up new ventures, the social entrepreneurship, or whether it's work that like what I do, which is more of this extrapreneurship, you know, how all those things come together and really solve, um, you know, the wicked problems that we have, what the SDGs speak to, the fact that even in the health sector, the complexity of the challenges that we face are actually interdisciplinary and innovation while focused in the health sector could be able to solve aspects, you know, issues in environment, water sanitation, et cetera, and vice versa, that you could have an innovation from another sector addressing a key health challenge. So, you know, if you have, you know, around, you know, homelessness, then you're basically, you know, affecting social determinants of health. And so being able to just take the time to think about interdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity and have frameworks. And ways of thinking, the biggest, you know, benefit for me from taking that time out.
0: If you were to talk to a young entrepreneur in Africa with a great idea for a specific health issue,
1: mm.
0: what would be the key things you would want that person to learn about health systems and the importance of understanding the social
1: systems? the healthcare operates in. So that's an interesting question. So through my time at Duke, I've had the the privilege to work with young people, either through university entrepreneurial programs, so strengthening entrepreneurial programs at specific universities, hosting Kenya's first healthcare hackathon in 2015. Um, so being able to kind of you know interact with people that are at the beginning stages of their journey. And a big thing I think is really that I found useful is user-centric design. So beginning to understand, you know, the space and in which your users, um, your potential users live in. And so sometimes it's easy to kind of, when I'm thinking of this large macro systems space, to overwhelm somebody with like oh you have to think about the complexity of systems but then i think it's easier to say okay so who's your user what are their personas how do they navigate life and as they navigate life in our low and middle income countries, of course, they face the complexities, you know, that it's not just accessing maternal child health, it's also water, sanitation, it's nutrition. So how do they, how do all of these facets, how do they interact with this? How do they affect their lives? And how can you be able to create an innovation that then uh, makes their life easier, you know? And so if you're starting with users at the core, then you're able to, you know, make a dent on some of the systemic challenges. So can you just give an
0: overview of how the economic challenge sort of manifests itself in, in sort of say, the
1: healthcare systems or, or the social systems as well? I think, let me first start off by saying, whilst, you know, I will call out some challenges, I also see them as opportunities, whether they are, you know, the existing institutions are not able to fill those gaps, as opportunities for others to step in. And so I always see, you know, as an African, you know, really believe Africa rising and believe in the potential of the continent and other low and middle income countries. So that said, some of the challenges, I think, are, you know, limited resources. So, for example, the public sector in, for example, the UK, there's, a, you know, there is investment in research and development, which then fosters, you know, innovations coming through and increasing the pipeline. You know, across Africa and a lot of other low and middle income countries, these resources are, you know, on science, technology, innovation, are limited. And so being able to just get that funding to start off and to be able to work in the space of innovation means that fewer people have the opportunity. Because then if you want to be an innovator or an entrepreneur, you then have to figure out, you know, how do you survive? How do you bootstrap and, you know, get this idea off the ground without maybe access to funding, easily accessible funding? I think the other aspect is also not just funding for early stage innovations, but then also resources to be able to integrate innovations within our systems. So a lot of the innovations that we see that have been integrated into national health systems have done so because of external funding. So you have grant funding, perhaps, that has allowed governments to take on innovations at scale uh, because then somebody needs to pay for that innovation. To and sustain it, and so I think those that's those are some of those issues, and then I think the other aspect is around the regulatory and policy environment, the environment, for example, around intellectual protection. So whilst countries are some countries are setting up, you know, IP laws. And strengthening that, it's an area where, you know, you then have to think through the process of getting a patent, for example. What's that process look like? What does it cost? Will this contract be honoured? Will this patent be actually honoured? And is it worth investing in this as an innovator? So that, I think, regulatory environment is something that needs to be strengthened. We are working on an area, for example, also around just making sure that the regulatory environment keeps in pace with what's happening. So we're working with uh, IGAD, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development in the Horn of Africa, setting up a regional policy on health data sharing and data protection to be able to facilitate, for example, telemedicine or uh, digital health solutions that allow for data portability, medical data portability that a patient can receive. Um, especially those who live at border regions can receive care across different countries, especially when you have more cross-border mobile populations who are pastoralists and need to, you know, because of their culture and their economic activities, need to move between countries or people who are displaced for whatever reason you know, need to access care in a different country. So how do you make sure that the patient's records move with the patient? And a lot of countries have set up, a couple of countries within this region have set up data protection acts. But then really those acts are not, you know, thinking about data sharing. How do you do data sharing in ways that benefit um, society? And so just strengthening, making sure that the regulatory environment keeps in pace with what's happening and the innovations that are coming in the digital health space, for example. I think another barrier is the aspects around education systems and I think research. And so being able to make sure that curricula within the academic setting are able to integrate innovation and entrepreneurship and allow young people to have you know some sense of what this space looks like. I know the University of Rwanda has done over the last couple of years has actually integrated a module a compulsory module on uh, innovation and entrepreneurship for all undergraduates, which I think is really great because then it gives more people the experience to think about, you know, I can be an innovator, I can be a social innovator, how can I apply what I'm learning to be able to create a novel solution that benefits others. There are these opportunities
0: to build new in low and middle income countries where, where institutions maybe haven't existed before. You know, in the UK, you've got these hundreds of years of bureaucratic iteration into
1: what the institution is and what it does yeah i understand the point you're making that whilst perhaps some certain spaces are more regulated in high-income countries just the fact that there's you know more flexible regulation and sometimes even no regulation you know is a spark for innovation so before you'd have what people call pilotitis so loads of pilots loads of small-scale projects but then no way to identify what's actually working, how do we elevate it, how do we scale it? And so now in Kenya, for example, there is a technical working group. And so any digital health innovation that has moved beyond pilot stage and wants to expand has to go through that vetting space present their results and then those are rigorously assessed and see and to understand you know how does that match up with what the priorities are in the health sector how are you contributing to that and what kind of partnerships do you have so there's a sort of filtering mechanism which then allows you know what's evidence based to be able to proceed forward with a bit more support, which I think is a way to make sure also that resources are used efficiently because often I think in low- and middle-income countries, the people who do have access, easier access to resources do end up being you know, not citizens of that country. So in Kenya, for example, the recent research across the space shows that the ventures that are raising funding are mostly often foreign-founded. And so then you want to make sure that even if those are the ventures that have easier access to capital, that they are using it efficiently. And so you have like an element of rigor that allows, you know, that allows only the best to, you know, to survive. I'm excited about the future of healthcare innovation, especially in low and middle income countries. i um, really excited to see how, you know, work that's being done, including by BMJ Innovations, can be able to support scaling of evidence-based innovations uh, to help them have broader impact to think about how different aspects, you know, such as frugal innovation, so adapting what's worked in low and middle income countries into other spaces. So we've had a couple of exciting examples that we've seen um, out of India, out of Africa, in the U.S., um, you know, in the digital health space especially. And the pandemic, I think, has been a wonderful accelerator of that. Um, and I think also the aspect of bundling innovations. So a lot of the times we've had, you know, we've celebrated individual innovators for what they can do, but not really thought about how they contribute to the healthcare value chain. And so being able to see, for example, a journal like the BMJ Innovations say like to an innovator that, like, yeah, as we do sort of your case series or as we publish this, have you thought of talking to this other innovator that has an adjacent solution and you know, that by probably setting up a collaboration, you could create more value and synergy. So being able to see concepts such as bundling of innovation, you know, taking roots, because stakeholders, I work in, you know, public sector in low and middle income countries, efficiency is a big deal. So being yeah. able to say that, you know, one plus one can give us three when these two innovators and in our system work, I think is something that I'm hoping to, to see more of.
0: Yeah. Can you give an example of bundled innovation, even if it's hypothetical, an example of how uh, sort of innovation needs another innovation in another system and maybe another one in another
1: system to have true impact? Yeah, so we are working right now with uh, Kenya's Ministry of Health that they, Kenya has uh is about to roll out a new primary healthcare um, delivery system, a service delivery system. And so we are helping them identify a number of innovations that they could put together to address certain gaps. So we, I'll think of this, or oh, just to caveat, none of these innovations are working together with each other right now, but we'd love for them to maybe after they listen to this podcast, they will. So yes. we have Jacaranda Health that has a digital health platform called Prompts. That is a two-way messaging service that helps triage pregnant women who have, you know, danger signs and, you know, change their health-seeking behavior. So if, if they have emergencies or they have danger signs in pregnancy, drive them to care and also drive them to care for routine services. Then we also have an ambulance service, like an, uh flare called, uh, they, I think that they characterize themselves as the Uber of ambulances. And so they are an aggregator of ambulances. And uh, referral is a big, you know, is a big issue. So, for example, you tell a woman, yes, you need to, you know, you're bleeding at uh, 22 weeks. You urgently need to go to care. You know, how does she access, you know, a way to get to that hospital? So I see, for example, prompts and flare, you know, working together so that then once this woman says, you know, how do I get there? Then that connection to flare is made, for example. And then there's a different innovation called Damu Sasa. Damu means blood in Kiswahili. And so what Damu Sasa is, is essentially an, a platform that allows health facilities to see where there is safe blood accessible because often they will not have maybe enough blood for if, for example, this lady actually ends up in a facility and needs to undergo an emergency caesarean section. And so being able to have, you know, that gap around access to safe blood is one of those um innovations that I could see bundled. So those three off the top of my head is sort of one of the ways that I can see. And all of them are working and they're fantastic. I, I would love to see them all brought together, perhaps through the, you know, the ministry to help them work closer together to create connection points so that then three innovations are really serving the user and making sure that the, you know, that the gaps in care are addressed effectively.
0: That's brilliant. That's such a great that's such a great example. And it's interesting I just reflected on you mentioning you're you're now working with the Kenyan Ministry of Health to develop a new way of delivering primary care. That's where where your sort of journey started. It really <laughs> is. <laughs> How can a medical journal like BMJ Innovations be an effective and positive part of the
1: innovations, infrastructure, especially in low and middle income countries? What's what's our role? I think, of course, um, the first thing just to inform people, because like uh, we've discussed, this is still a niche space. It's a very small space, healthcare innovation. It's nascent, it's growing. So that community is almost like a tight community. And you do want to make sure that you know broader audiences have access to the different innovations that are working and that can even be adapted into new contexts. Um, so just being, being able to be a platform that informs uh, a broad range of stakeholders Then I think being able to improve the rigor, you know, around healthcare innovation. So for a few ventures would probably maybe be able to do, you know, gold standard uh, randomized control trial, but then most other innovators would be like, okay, we can't afford an RCT, so let's just go anecdotes. And so just being able to then say that there's other ways, you know, on which to be able to demonstrate impact. And if you want to be published in a journal, you do need to have some impact numbers. And so just being able to improve the rigor in the space, but then also being able to be a validator of what's working. And so what you're doing works and is evidence-based really is such a great stamp of approval and allows even for some of these innovators for certain doors to be opened in the public sector or with private partners. So I think just those three aspects. So just being able to be a validator to improve rigor in the space and then inform broader audiences. That's great. What a great answer.
0: <laughs> we'll use you in our, our marketing. <laughs> <laughs> we're grateful to Patricia Odero for her time and we hope you enjoyed the interview. There are links to some of the amazing organisations and entrepreneurs she's associated with in the show notes. Next week, we're talking to Jean Neim, the founder of Touch Surgery. So if you're interested in finding out how you go from idea to startup to acquisition and beyond, listen up. And please help us reach more innovating ears by liking, subscribing, reviewing and sharing wherever you get the chance. BMJ Innovations is grateful to the World Innovation Summit for Health, WISH, for making this podcast series possible. It was produced and presented by me, Helen Serrana, for BMJ Innovations and is editorially independent. If you have any comments or questions, do get in touch via social media or info.innovations at bmj.com. Goodbye. Thank you.